Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk on Wednesday, the 24th of May. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Just look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk in your favorite podcast app. Or go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and follow one of the links there. And you can also get in touch with me there as well. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Republican and White House debt ceiling negotiators struggle to make progress Tuesday with little more than a week to go before a potential U.S. debt default. Earlier on Tuesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said he was nowhere close to an agreement with Mr. Biden. President Biden declared Monday evening that default is off the table as the two sides try to reach agreement on a lifting of the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling. Economic activity in Japan's private sector expanded rapidly in May as business confidence and employment jumped following the unwinding of COVID-19 restrictions. The Aljibin Bank Japan flash composite PMI rose to 54.9 in May from a final reading of 52.9 in April. That was the fourth straight month of growth in private sector activity and also the steepest pace of growth since October 2013. Inflation in Singapore rose more than expected last month. The annual inflation rate increased to 5.7% in April, up from March's 11-month low. The main upward pressure came from higher inflation for transport, particularly private transport. The annual core inflation rate, which excludes accommodation and private transport, was unchanged at 5%, remaining at its lowest since July 2022. And South Korea has indicated it will not intervene to stop its companies, Samsung and SK Hynix, from filling the market gap left after China imposed a ban on US chipmaker Micron. Last month, it was reported that the White House had quietly asked South Korea to urge its chipmakers to hold back from boosting sales to China if the sale of Micron products was restricted by Beijing. However, South Korea's government said that they wouldn't intervene in the escalating tech dispute between the US and China and would defer to the companies. On today's programme, I'm joined by capital preservation specialist Enzio von Fahl and Mitchell Katecha, head of emerging market strategy at TD Securities. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. U.S. stocks fell Tuesday as debt ceiling negotiations yielded little progress. The S&P 500 dropped 1.1% to end the day at 4,146. The Dow lost 231 points or 0.7% to finish at 33,056. The Nasdaq Composite pulled back 1.3% to close at 12,560. Shares of regional bank PacWest surged almost 8% on Tuesday, building on Monday's 20% gain after the bank agreed to sell real estate loans worth about 2.6 billion US dollars and focus on its core business. Treasuries were firmer, which means yields were lower, with earlier losses unwound. As risk conditions turned negative, the 10-year Treasury note yield touched 3.73% on Tuesday. That's the highest since March the 13th, before reversing to close two basis points lower at 3.7%. Chinese shares led losses in Asia yesterday. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index reversed earlier gains and closed down 247 points, that's 1.3%, at a two-month low 
of 19,431. The losses are likely to continue this morning, with futures pointing to a 200-point loss for the Hang Seng at the open. The tech index lost 1.3% yesterday. Shares of Guizhou Technology jumped 3.1% after the company reported a 20% increase in first quarter revenue and announced a share buyback program of up to 4 billion Hong Kong dollars. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was the worst performer in the region, dipping 1.5% to end at 3,246. The index was led lower by financials. China Life Insurance and the Agricultural Bank of China slid 4.1% and 3.1% respectively. The Bank of China sank 3.1%, while the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China was down 2.8%. And elsewhere in the markets, one other thing to note, copper prices have hit a 2023 low. The metal reached $364 per pound. That's its lowest since the 29th of November 2022. Dr. Copper has dropped 6.8% since the beginning of the month, putting it on track for its worst monthly performance since June 2022. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's time to welcome our guests. We have with us our regular Wednesday morning com- uh, commentator, Enzio von Farl, who is a capital preservation specialist for individuals. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us down in Singapore, we find Mitchell Katecha, who is Head of Emerging Market Strategies at TD Securities. Good to speak with you again, Mitchell. Good morning, Peter. Republican and White House debt ceiling negotiators have struggled to make progress with little more than a week to go before a potential US debt default. The White House press secretary told reporters in a briefing on Tuesday that while areas of disagreement remain, the president, the speaker and their teams will continue to discuss the path forward. But earlier, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, met with Republican lawmakers and said he was nowhere close to an agreement with Mr. Biden. President Biden declared Monday evening that default is off the table as the two sides try to reach an agreement on a lifting of the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the US could realistically default as soon as June the 1st if there is no agreement. Enzio, this is not projecting a very good image, is it, about the American economy and the, and the way in which it's run? Well, that's been the problem for some years, having lived there for so many years. I just think that before we get all on onto the views, there's a lot that needs to be done once these guys have agreed. I do believe they will agree something at the last minute. First of all, they have to turn the, the framework into legislative text. Then the budget score needs to be given by the Congressional Budget Office. And finally, all congressional members must have 72 hours to read the bill. So, my reckoning from the cal- just from the calendar is that the 72 hours have to start this Monday, the 29th of May, in order to finish ahead of D-Day, which is this coming Thursday, the 1st of June. Mm. I think the clock is ticking, but I think ultimately both sides don't want to be seen to be ruining the U.S. economy. And thus, I think, as always, 2011, 2013, there will be an agreement. Mitchell, what are your thoughts? I do think this is going to go down to the wire. Um, unfortunately, there are pretty wide disparities in views amongst both parties. Um, you know, although it does look like that the administration wants to try and push 
on revenue raising measures uh, and try and push in that direction. Republicans don't really want to go there. And then at the same time, the Republicans want to cut spending uh, more and Democrats don't want to go there. And between these, each party, for example, you've got the right wing freedom caucus in the Republican Party. You've got very left leaning Democrats. So unfortunately, there's quite a wide uh, disparity of views within Congress. And it just looks like, you know, although we've heard positive noises coming out of talks, obviously today they've stalled. Uh, there's no new negotiations being set in terms of any timeline. Let me ask you both, um, Enzio, maybe first, why is it yeah. suddenly so important to cut spending cut debt obviously um it's always a good idea i suppose but if you look at the u.s situation debt to gdp is about a hundred percent nowhere near as bad as say countries like japan where it's about 260 percent china public debt's about 300 percent of gdp why is this such a pressing issue right now that you know debt has to be cut spending has to be cut even if necessary it puts the the u.s uh, economy into default well, it's, it's all really the, the run-up to the, to the presidential elections next year. I think that I see this as a game of um, chicken a la Machiavelli, not a la King. <laughs> and I just think that it's, it's this disgusting posturing that I know only too well from my years on the Hill, but especially about the staff members. So um, ultimately, actually, the U.S. still is the world's reserve currency. They can print as much money as they want, and that will last at least through our lifetimes, even after your radio show, Money Talk, has ended in many, many decades, Peter. Um, so I think it's it's more just the, 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 the deadline, this 1st of June deadline that's focusing the minds. But again, I would say there's a lot of political mach- chicken a la Machiavelli and um, the, but ultimately the, the, the debt situation will continue worsening, but the Americans say, well, who cares? We just print more money. Mm-hmm. Mitchell, it, it, if you compare the American debt situation to, say, Japan and China, um, it, it looks quite reasonable, doesn't it? Well, certainly if you do it as a percentage of, of GDP. Yeah, look, I think that's absolutely right. The, uh, the, the, the big difference between uh, Japan, China and the U.S. is, Obviously, the fact that the uh, dollar is the world's uh, biggest reserve currency and the U.S. can still get away with issuing more and more debt. Uh, Obviously, you don't have similar debt impasses in China or Japan, Mm -hmm. as we're seeing now. Um, But yes, of course, look, I mean, I think that that's clearly, you know, you look at the the rise in debt to GDP in China, for instance, approaching 300 percent of GDP uh, in terms of non-financial corporate debt. There's clearly uh, a domestic leverage concern focused there, and that's why we're not seeing any leverage increases in China, for instance. In Japan, we know that the BOJ tends to buy most of the government debt issued uh, through its monetary policy. But clearly, uh, again, this is a a very unique U.S. issue. Uh, It's something that comes up more and more regularly. Um, And, uh, you know, last time in 2011 when we had a breach of the debt ceiling, clearly uh, there's quite a sharp reaction in markets. It still, and I would agree uh, with NGO, I, I don't think we're going to get to that point. I think uh, we'll, we'll see a last-minute deal, uh, but clearly it is getting very, very close, very much down to the wire here. 
Enzio, in terms of the mechanics of this, I presume that even if there's no agreement and we get to this X date, and let's assume Janet Yellen is right, it is the 1st of June, the US isn't going to default on its debt on the 1st of June, is it? There's going to be other things that it will do first um, that it would rather default on than its debt, even if that meant maybe not paying Social Security benefits, which obviously will be bad for those recipients of it, but they would prioritise things like that uh, than defaulting on its debt. I totally agree. I think that one can't leave our favorite and the, the, the one that were, you were so active for years, Peter, the markets out of this. Uh, the markets would, of course, cause their own form of fiscal tightening by the, by the banks going into a massive credit crunch. Um, so you have a, a, a form of excess demand for money being worsened in America, according to the, that would worsen the American economic time. And so also I think that the, the, the whole role of the, of the Treasury bills would be sort of go fat, would, would just go, would go down, the, down the drain, basically. The corporate cash managers wouldn't have, would have to miss payments to one another. Um, the wheels of commerce would grind to a halt. Traders don't have the collateral anymore against which they're trading their positions. So collateral vanishes, and that, of course, then also causes global chaos. So even if the government doesn't default per se, Last time around, the Fed in 2013 reckoned that if the government had stayed in this limbo for one month, the market would have fallen by some 30%. Mm, Mitchell, do you see it as catastrophic as that if there is, a, if we get to the X date and no agreement, or even worse, if there is a default, is it catastrophic for the financial markets and for the economy? Well, I don't know if it's catastrophic, but I, I do think uh, that it could be very, very severe an impact. And look, technically, the last time the U.S. failed to make uh, payments uh, to investors was around 122 million of T-bills in April 1979. And uh, at that point, it was more of a technical um, issue. But since then, we haven't had a sort of default or lack of payment. Uh, but look, I think we could see debt downgrades come through. Um, I think... Perversely, the, the reaction in markets would be to significantly push the dollar higher. Uh, and you'd see, oddly, uh, U.S. Treasury yields drop sharply as we see this demand for Treasuries pick up significantly. Um, and you could see a major risk event across global markets uh, coming through if there is uh, this uh, actual default taking place. Um, look, there are other options that have been uh, pushed and, and, and talked about, which I think are not really feasible. Which, for example, the invoking of the 14th Amendment, in which case uh, the, the, uh, you could see it is an amendment that basically says the validity of the public debt of the U.S. should not be questioned uh, in this way that the, the president could unilaterally increase the debt ceiling. But that could have all sorts of constitutional implications if that mm -hmm. is the case. Another one is minting a platinum coin. Uh, so there's talk mm -hmm. that the Treasury could mint a coin worth a, a trillion dollars. But again, that does seem to be a non-starter. So, look, if they don't agree anything in the next few days or so, uh, obviously that default could have, uh, I would say, very significant market reactions globally. I'm not sure about catastrophic, but certainly very, very major reactions. It would be an odd sort of default, wouldn't it? Because it, this is not like, say, Pakistan or Sri Lanka defaulting, where there's no chance of you getting your money back. You would get your money back. Um, there's no question of, of that. It's just that you're not going to be paid on the, the date you thought you would be. No, I, 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 just building on what, what Mitchell was saying, just to refresh memories, and what next to what Mitchell said, the... The government, I think in 2013, the debt was downgraded 
if I recall, it was 2013 or 2011. I, I can't remember now. But I think the key point is that it's it it it's not the end of the world, is it? Because you, it is a reserve currency, so it may be Pakistan on the inside, but sure isn't Pakistan on the outside to the world investors. Mitchell. Uh, well, again, I mean, just to reiterate the point, I mean, look, I, I think one thing, to, you know, we talked about the impact. Um, it, it could be very, very significant in terms of equities. I think one thing to watch out for is equities seem to have rallied in recent weeks uh, and almost had a very sanguine view of what's happening in terms of the debt ceiling. And uh, I think there is a risk here that if you do see uh, an actual uh, default, we could see a, a very major impact on equity markets globally. Uh, obviously, particularly in the U.S., given the run-up that we've seen, we, you know, our, our view is that we would see a very broad-based risk-off situation here, um, a big flight to Treasuries, uh, a bull steepening of the curve. Um, but again, you know, uh, as as Enzio mentioned, you know, when we had the downgrade in 2011, uh, you didn't necessarily see such a major impact. Mm. And we are seeing the beginnings of that, aren't we? Although maybe not so much in US equities because they've been fairly well behaved. But certainly in bonds, we're seeing uh, treasury yields rise. We're seeing the US dollar rise. Does this Mitchell have a particularly nasty effect on emerging markets, which you obviously follow quite closely? Well, I think that's right. Look, I, I think what we're already starting to see is uh, the strength of the dollar is uh, or the recent rebound of the dollar is impacting a number of emerging market currencies. Higher treasury yields generally bode badly for emerging market local currency bonds. Look, we haven't had a uh, emerging market crisis per se, at least in the mainstream emerging markets. The peripheral EMs, such as, for example, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, and go back to Pakistan, etc., uh, or, or North Africa, where we've had much of the pressure in this run-up in U.S. dollar and U.S. yields in the last year or so. But generally, emerging markets have been fairly well contained. Now, look. If we see a debt default, uh, I would imagine we're going to see a lot of pressure on emerging markets uh, like everywhere else. And you would probably see this as a, an asset class would see, again, a, a big sell off and a, a significant outflow of capital. The only caveat here is that last year we already saw a major capital outflow from emerging markets. So there may be a little bit more resilience than, than given the positioning and valuations in many EM assets already quite cheap. Enzio, I suppose the problem with all of this is it's causing a fiscal tightening, isn't it? Even um, after all the interest rate rises that we've seen, and even if this is resolved now and uh, we get to June the 1st OK, the Treasury is going to be in the position where it's got to raise a massive amount of money to, to replenish its coffers. So it's going to issue a lot of bonds. That's going to drain liquidity from the system, push interest rates up. This is all um, going to cause a, a tightening of the financial system and, the, and, uh, and liquidity in the economy, isn't it? Yes, it, it worsens America's economic time, which I would label as excess demand for money, excess supply of goods very much on the horizon, on the very near horizon, uh, the excess demand, the excess supply of goods coming very much just because the credit crunch is, is a twofold. One is the Fed, as you've just said, and what it will have to do to raise more money, taking more money out of the economy, and of course, and also the banks just saying that they don't want to lend anymore either, to be quite blunt. So it exacerbates that economic situation. That again ties in with our view that a stagflation, a form of stagflation, even if it's just slow growth, not recession, 
is very much on the cards going into that presidential election year. And that, in turn, will make these hardball negotiations even nastier in the last few days. Mitchell, well, where do you see the direction then for, for U.S. interest rates from from here? Jerome Powell is, is saying that tighter credit conditions from the turmoil that we've seen at U.S. banks could limit uh, the extent of future rate hikes, because um, that that's already tightening the economy. Um, but then at the same time, you've got a couple of uh, Fed speakers. Neil Kashkari said Monday that uh, rates are going to eventually go north of 6%. James Bullard is, is saying a similar thing, seeing two more rate rises this year. That, that's right. The, the Fed is pretty split in terms of where they see policy rates in the U.S. There's even talk of uh, skipping June and potentially starting to hike again after June, where perhaps the Fed could skip or pause uh, just to see whether inflation pressures start to ease more significantly and or the economy starts to lose more momentum. See, the problem, I guess, is the Fed is in a bit of a dilemma. You've got inflation that's still very sticky, especially in uh, core services inflation. And at the same time, there are growth indicators that are starting to soften. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, the concerns about credit stress and tightening uh, on the back of the banking sector issues. So it, it is a difficult position for the Fed. Our house view is still uh, that the Fed hikes in June, but the market is not pricing this in. So we could see another another 25 mm. basis point hike uh, mm. before uh, we get towards later in the year. Uh, and our view is, again, the Fed will cut policy rates later than the market's expecting. The market's pricing in cuts around September to begin around September. We think around December when the Fed starts cutting rates. But again, it's very, very difficult. And as we've seen from a number of Fed comments, they are split themselves in terms of where they see policy here. But one thing we do expect is as we go towards the end of the year, we will see likely a recession uh, around the fourth quarter of this year in the U.S. Uh, start to take shape. And so you've been saying for a while now that rates are going to go above 5%. Do you, do you, do you think even above 6%? No, not above. I, I, I think I, being an old economics hack, if you say it long enough, it'll happen. But I agree with Mitchell on these points that he was saying. I think just one to add, the, the, the Fed will cut the rates going into the presidential elections, in my mind, and that's only November of next year. So we shouldn't forget that. The other one to always remember is that the inflation rate that the Fed uses is this mouthful called the core personal consumption expenditure price index. You try and create a sensible acronym out of that and good luck. But this core personal consumption expenditure price index is still running, I believe, at around 4.9. In other words, over twice the Fed's target of 2%. So I don't think they want to be making the stake yet again. They they are too long now. They don't want to they don't want to tighten far too 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 little. Um, so easing far too much, tightening far too little. I don't think they want to be leaving that thing with egg all over their face. Okay, Mitchell, let me turn to another um, economy in the region, Japan. Eco- economic activity in Japan's private sector expanded rapidly uh, in May. Um, following the unwinding of COVID restric- restrictions, the flash composite PMI rose to 54.9 from 52.9 in April, the fourth straight month of growth in private sector activity, also the fastest growth rate since October 2013. It does look like, doesn't it, things are at last coming together um, for Japan, both in terms of the economy, also the markets um, are, are outperforming everything else, not just in the region, but around the world. 
Yeah, that's right. Equity rally has been pretty substantial in, in Japan. And clearly there is a, a shift in sentiment towards the growth outlook uh, in the economy. And we, we've seen that the post-COVID rebound has been pretty good. Uh, consumer spending has picked up. But again, it's unclear whether and how much this is sustainable going forward. Uh, and I think this is one of the concerns from the Bank of Japan. And, and we've seen uh, the new governor, Ueda, uh, having sounded fairly dovish uh, in recent weeks through his comments, suggesting that we're not going to see any quick policy changes and any uh, shift in the yield curve control ban or any shift in the policy balance rate in Japan. So while there is signs of improvement, um, one of the concerns uh, that we have for the Japanese economy is on the manufacturing side, uh, where you know weaker exports growth is likely to weigh on the economy this year. And while you know, growth, although probably still above trend, it's still not going to be accelerating in the months ahead. So I think that the, the risk here is that this rebound is not sustainable. Manufacturing pressures start having a bigger impact on the economy. Uh, and ultimately, that leaves uh, policy rates still very much uh, very weak, very low. Uh, and ultimately, uh, Japan continues to struggle forward. Given it's, you know, we know that there are a bunch of democratic, uh, sorry, demographic and structural issues that continue to be faced in the economy. Wages still haven't picked up substantially enough for the BOJ to act. So I do think there's a number of concerns still left uh, for Japan's economy in the next uh, several months or years even. Enzio, do you see the, uh, the, the rebound in Japan's economy as having legs? I, I think it's to be to say rebound is, is a very strong term, having covered Japan for years. I do think, though, that this time is different. Inflation is getting some legs. Inflation wages are at least beginning to rise a little bit. So let's call it spring shoots. Perhaps the most important thing is that more global scrutiny of activist fund managers is waking Japanese companies up to the realities of the marketplace. So I, I think that Japan time being characterized by an excess supply of money, excess supply of goods. I think the bottom has been hit. And I, I do think that the rise is sustainable. But again, it's a little bit like with Japan. You're currently witnessing this post-COVID rise up to that 33% higher on the topics. Um, I think it will be better than China's because of these very fundamental changes in the, the wages, the global scrutiny and the inflation, at least looking to have some more legs in Japan. Okay, well, thank you very much. You heard there Enzio von Fahl, our regular Wednesday commentator, who is a capital preservation specialist for individuals. And also with us was Mitchell Katecha, who is head of emerging market strategy at TD Securities. I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Morning, Peter. Well, what a rally we've been seeing over the last uh, week or so in Japanese equities. Uh, it lasted seven days. It did come to an end uh, yesterday with a brief, uh, with a small pullback. But ultimately, um, Japanese stocks, the Nikkei 225, the topics back to where they were in 1990. Is, is this sustainable? Well, it is pretty incredible. Um, whether it's sustainable, I think, really depends on the government at this point. You know, as you and I have discussed over the years, um, Japan's been talking quite a bit about reforming the economy, loosening labor markets, reducing red tape, uh, improving corporate governance. Not a lot has happened. Uh, so we have the BOJ pumping a lot of money 
into the economy and that's working its way into the markets. And I think what's happening right now is investors are looking at the world. They're looking at the U.S., they're looking at Europe, they're looking at China. And Japan looks like a bit of a, a safe haven, all things considered. The government has to basically step up the reform process to catch up with its optimism. So for now, you know, I think the move into Japanese stocks is not irrational, but whether it's sustainable over time relies on the government looking around and taking a deep breath and getting serious about raising the economy's economic game. We'll see. Mm. I mean, and we've had a few false dawns, haven't we, in Japan over the years, both in terms of the markets and in terms of the economy. But it, it does feel different this time. It, it feels like things are finally um, coming together um, for, for Japan. I mean, inflation, which is, has been trying to get up, has picked up. It's at a, what, a 40-year um, high now. But interest rates are still very low. The economy um, seems to be uh, improving. And, and foreign investors as well, they seem to be looking much more closely at Japan. So it does seem like um, the pieces are coming together, doesn't it? It is true. I mean, you pointed out in your newsletter this morning that in some ways the metrics we're looking at in Japan are looking the best since about 2013. And that's significant because that's around the time when the Bank of Japan really shifted into high gear in terms of stimulating the economy. I think we also have to talk for a moment about the Warren Buffett effect. You know, the Mm. one person doesn't tend to make a great deal of difference to one economy, but You know, when you're talking about Warren Buffett investing in Japan three years ago and actually making a killing doing it, I think that's raised a lot of eyebrows. And I think in many ways, again, people are looking at the world. Japan is the kind of the least ugly major economy at the moment, all things considered. You have Warren Buffett, you have Elliott Management looking at Japan, um, you know, basically for undervalued stocks. I think you have all these different, you know, forces coming together and you know, Japan on a relative basis is looking pretty stable at the moment, all things considered. The the thing, I, the only thing I find surprising about uh, Warren Buffett <laughs> in Japan is what he is actually invested in, which is basically trading houses. <laughs> These are the traditional old-fashioned Japanese conglomerates, aren't they, which are, which have sort of come together. They're not your high-flying tech companies that are exciting sort of go-go companies. These are f- fairly steady, sort of stayed um, sort of companies. And he doesn't seem to have looked at anything else, just those five trading houses. Is, are you a little bit surprised about that? Yes, exactly. When this first happened, everybody looked around and said, what, where? Um, some of these trading houses are 100 years old, and there are companies that people haven't thought about very much. Uh, in the last 20 years. And so it was a surprise. But, you know, if you're Warren Buffett and you're looking for boring and stable returns, he's done quite well. And what's interesting to a lot of folks here is Buffett was in Japan last month kind of kicking the tires, talking about additional investments in Japan. And the question is where and what he's not saying. But I think the idea of, of Warren Buffett, you know, basically coming here and making the rounds in Tokyo and Osaka I think it created a bit more optimism. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. But I, but I do think at the moment, Japan is having a bit of a moment in some ways on a relative basis because, you know, with, with the U.S. and Congress being in, in such you know, political turmoil, if you will, China, who knows what's going on there in terms of the crackdown on the tech sector. I think people are looking at the world and saying, you know, Japan is kind of boring at the moment, but that's good. Mm, it does stand out as a bit of a safe haven right now, doesn't it? When you've got all yes. this trouble between China and, and the US, it seems like, you know, it, it is the place to look. How, how much also 
are the focus on corporate governance and and also shareholder returns making a difference? Because there has been, hasn't there, in in the last couple of years or so, a big effort on the part of the Japanese government to get companies to focus more on on returns and also on corporate governance. We've we've seen that uh, happen with some quite big companies recently. Is that having an impact as well and one of the reasons for this rally? It is having an impact, but I wouldn't call it a big effort. I would call it more of a modest effort. I think that, you know, we talked, you and I have talked a lot about Shinzo Abe over the years. He had eight years in office to really shake things up. And he did a couple of low hanging fruit things to improve corporate governance, to give shareholders a bigger say. But, you know, we still are seeing a situation where chieftains here are basically pushing back against wholesale change in the financial system and the corporate governance. And things are getting better. Hmm. And I think investors are responding to that. They're not as good as they could be. But I think in many ways, you have the BOJ continuing to hit the gas. You have Japan improving to some extent in in the corporate governance fronts. And all these forces are coming together to give Japan a bit of uh, an investment halo at the moment. The question is, can it continue? We'll see. Hmm. And and the other thing, of course, is that inflation's going up, isn't it? I mean, if you look at core yes. core inflation at four percent, that means um, holding cash is not so good anymore. So I presume that um, this is what investors are doing; they're having to look around at alternatives. It is true, but I think one of the concerns also is the Japanese yen is weakening once again. You know, two months ago, everyone talked about, "Oh, there's a new BOJ governor coming in. He'll think differently. He'll think out of the box. He'll end the quantitative easing." It hasn't happened. In fact, uh, the new BOJ governor, uh, Kazuo Ueda, is in some ways going in the opposite direction. He's talking about leaving Japan on autopilot monetary policy-wise. And so, you know, if you're worried about inflation, you see the yen going to 140, maybe 150 in the months ahead. That's not a good scenario because most of Japan's inflation is imported. So, you know, for Japan, I think at the moment, it's a positive moment as investors are looking this way. But as you mentioned, it's a complicated moment. And what do you think is going to happen to this yield curve control policy? Is it going to go? Or? I think it's actually here to stay a lot longer than people realize. I think one of the problems is that when you know, the, the Bank of Japan is learning that when you grow your balance sheet to more than, you know, basically larger than annual gross domestic product, it's very, very hard to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the last BOJ governor, Kuroda, on the way out, he could have taken a couple of steps to set the stage for withdrawing. He did not. And so it falls to the new BOJ governor to figure out an exit. And I think it will be very, very difficult to do so. I think the bond market, the stock market will react very badly. And then the political establishment points fingers at the BOJ and says, you're wrecking the economy. So it's a rough moment for the BOJ. Um, it's, I, I don't really envy uh, the Bank of Japan's challenge in 2023. And they're doing this review, aren't they, of of what the Bank of Japan has done over the last couple of decades. This review is going to take a long time, a a year to a year and a half. I mean, does that mean there's going to be no change in monetary policy in that that year to a year and a half while the review is going on? I think the odds are high that, yes, we'll see little to no change. Remember back in December, on December 20th of last year, you you and I talked about it then, um, the BOJ tried to do the, the slightest of tweaks. Uh, it tried to allow 10-year yields to rise to about 0.5%. And all hell broke loose in global markets. The yen surged. And I think at that moment, the BOJ realized that even a small technical tweak 
is very impactful. So I think we could see the BOJ on hold for quite some time. So for BOJ reporters, it could be a more boring year than uh, than they'd hoped for. Mm. And and of course, um, the, the BOJ is all in, isn't it? It owns more than 50% of the Japanese government bond market. It, it's almost in this position now where it, it, it can't get out of that, can it, without causing financial chaos? It is trapped. And the problem is that, you know, about 90% of Japanese government bonds are held domestically. So when yields rise here, everyone gets hurt, including the government, in terms, including pension funds, including corporate coffers. And so there really is this kind of mutually assured destruction situation where the BOJ faces <laughs> where when, when bond yields rise, everyone you know panics in a way. And then that feed, the feedbacks into the stock market, that creates a negative wealth effect for the economy. So I think that the BOJ, unfortunately, is captive to the markets. It's not leading the markets. Mm. So could could we end up with a U.S. banking-type crisis if they went too far? Because obviously Japanese banks hold a lot of Japanese government bonds, don't they, in the same way that U.S. banks are sitting on huge numbers of treasuries and big unrealized losses? Exactly. This This is a big concern for regional banks, right? Japan has more than 100 regional banks, some of them more than 100 years old, and they're servicing communities that are aging and shrinking. Uh, competition is, is is rampant. So a lot of these banks, rather than making loans these last 10 years, they've been hoarding bonds. And so when you look at what blew up Silicon Valley Bank in the U.S., a lot of regional banks here have a very similar profile. That's another problem for the BOJ. If you begin withdrawing stimulus, if you begin withdrawing liquidity, if you begin changing the yield curve, in any significant way, will you blow up a couple of regional banks in Japan? And there's a great deal of concern about that as well. So I think in, in many ways, again, the, the BOJ is more trapped than investors seem to uh, to realize. And what about the economy? We had the PMI data out yesterday. It shows the economy expanding quite rapidly, the fourth straight month of growth in uh, private sector activity and the fastest rate of growth since October 2013. Yeah, I mean, certainly the weekend is, is helping Japan from an export standpoint. And the end of COVID or the the, you know, the cessation of COVID, we'll see what happens, um, is returning tourism. Like I was in Kyoto about 10 days ago, and I it was bumper to bumper people. It was pretty incredible. And so Japan is seeing a bit of a tourism boom at the moment. And at the margin, you know, the economy is having a, a good moment. Um, there are side effects, as you mentioned. Inflation is at 40-year highs. There's a lot of concern about that. But from a, you know, from a Japanese economic revival standpoint, the economy is looking better today than it did, say, three or four months ago. Um, I'm reasonably optimistic about the year ahead, but I do think that inflation is, is a growing problem. And that could feed back into the consumer sector and prompt people to close their wallets again. So the BOJ has to pay very close attention to that as well. So, again, it's the Bank of Japan. It really is the worst job in economics in uh, 2023, I think. <laughs> well, William, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for that. My pleasure. Thank you, Peter. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow for the final show of the week as it's a holiday here in Hong Kong on Friday. Joining me will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Nitin Dialdas, who is Chief Investment Officer at Mandrake Capital. And here to discuss the decarbonisation of the Greater Bay Area will be Lawrence Yu, who's Executive Director at Civic Exchange. If you want some more information on some of the top stories from around the region, please take a look at my daily newsletter on Peter Lewis Money Talk. I'll see you tomorrow. Money Talk.